Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. What's going on, Warriors? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. What's going on, man? I'm really excited for this. We have a special reason to drop an episode in the middle of the week. Absolutely. It's not very often that the second ranking official in human and health services from the United States government says he's going to sit down with you and talk about sickle cell disease. Doesn't even make sense, but I'm so glad he's joining us. This guy has been everywhere. He's been at every meeting, standing up for every single warrior out there, making it known that sickle cell disease should be a priority. Yeah, so we're going to have on Admiral Brett Girard, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. So to give you an idea, the very highest person in the whole medical system in the United States is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. It's a cabinet position, oversee our whole healthcare system in the U.S., and this is his second in command. He wears a military outfit. He's an admiral, also a pediatric ICU doctor and a sickle cell advocate, you know, one of our own in the halls of power. And you can tell, I mean, some things are moving, things that didn't used to happen are happening. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to talk to him today about what's going on. So this individual has authored or co-authored more than a hundred scientific publications. He's won the U.S. Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. He graduated from Harvard University and then did his MD degree at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas and did his, his training, his residency and fellowship in Dallas where he became a pediatric critical care medicine doctor. And we know our pediatric critical care doctors see our sickle cell patients a lot because Absolutely. when things go downhill with our patients, they end up almost uniformly in the critical care unit. And Dallas is George Buchanan's program that was a leader in sickle cell research for decades and decades. So, you know, he saw a lot of sickle cell patients. and For sure, for sure. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the Shamanica Wiggins episode because the Admiral is going to talk a little bit about Shamanica and what his relationship with her has been and how that sort of driven him to be passionate about sickle cell disease. Be sure to check that out either before or after this episode. We hope you guys enjoy All right. So Admiral, the thing that's so striking about you is your passion for sickle cell disease. And I wanted to get into a little bit about where this passion comes from. How did sickle cell disease become so important to you? It's a really good question. And it really started just being a physician at a children's hospital. Then we had a very, very large population of children suffering from sickle cell. And I don't remember exactly when universal newborn screening happened, but you know, I made my first diagnosis of sickle cell with a person with splenic sequestration because they weren't diagnosed and we had children with dactylitis and, you know, all the full spectrum. So it's something I dealt with and I really felt awful about because the children had such pain. You know, we didn't have good prevention for strokes then. You'd see children having strokes, dying very early. So it, it really kind of touched me. Secondly, my wife and I were mentors starting, you know, when I was an intern, actually a medical student for children in underserved communities in Dallas. And we became very close to them. One of the children that we were mentors for, and I mean mentors, we saw these children multiple days a week. They were at our house in weekends was uh, Shamanica Wiggins was a patient of mine. And we've really known her as part of our family since third grade. 
And she's really demonstrated to us, no matter how strong you are and how motivated and what you have, how sickle cell can really affect a person's life. And so we, we got that personal perspective. And third, I just mean this. I don't know whether it's sort of the sense of fairness. It's always seemed tragic to me that this was the first molecularly characterized disease, but yet people haven't really benefited from science. And I still tear up about it when I first came here on the first talk I had on Minority Health Week. One of the people in the audience was a reporter who also was living with sickle cell disease. And she said, all my life, I felt that sickle cell patients were at the end of the line. And for the first time, I feel we're not. Just to me, it just seems like something out of a sense of fairness and justice that you should do it. So I think all those three things sort of enter into it. And I think the final thing is just the opportunity to do good, right? This is not a a futile task. We could do so good for so many people just by helping people get the standard of care, just by being compassionate to them when they come into the emergency room in pain. And from my perspective, by, you know, supporting research and innovation and blueprints from the National Academy and having a roundtable at the White House to shed light on this. So we're going to do what we can. We're all on the same team. We have different parts, different roles right now. My role's here, and I'm going to do as much as I can while I have it. It means so much to me as a sickle cell provider to hear this type of work being done by people like you, by the administration. And truly, I mean, we can see a clear change in what this administration has done for sickle cell disease. What you have accomplished in the last four years for sickle cell disease has been more than has been done in ever. We are not satisfied, let me tell you. We have a long way to go. I think we've got momentum, some better data systems. For the first time, I'm so pleased that CMS was able to pull the data on sickle cell patients for everybody on Medicaid and CHIP. We've never had that before. Now that we have the data, but it's really ugly. The care that people receive is really not the standard that you give. It's not even close to the standard you give. So we have that work to do. I really want to work on systems of care. You know, we've had a sickle cell demonstration treatment project at HRSA for 14 years with the same $4 million of funding. That should be 40 or $400 million because it works. We just need to do that. And I, I think, you know, we don't want to neglect our brothers and sisters around the world. And just by a little work in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, we can have the realistic opportunity just by newborn screening, pneumococcal vaccine and penicillin to save 9 million children by 2050. So we have a long way to go, but I want to be with you in getting there, whether I'm in uniform or not. You know, we have a long way to go, but we're going to get there together. I love all of that, especially the funding for the HHS uh, demonstration projects that worked. You had brought up Shamanika, and we had her on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. I remember the first time we met you was at a, a big sickle cell meeting, and you were given the, one of the main talks, and you told the story about you were on Twitter, and a patient was having problems at the hospital, so you showed up in your uniform and talked to the intern about it. We were so impressed by that. We said, you know, we got a leader in the, in the administration, and it's great to see all these things coming down. What can we do as sickle cell providers, as warriors with sickle cell to help push that? Well, I think we're all doing it. I think one thing that we've been able to do together is now that there's some momentum and interest, we've got to be, you know, like a choir. We've got to sing in harmony. And there's so many groups, but we want to get them all together because we're going to be more powerful if we sing sort of off the same sheet of music. 
And that's one thing that was really concerning to me, that despite the interest, we were getting fragmented. Secondly, we want to help the community get some sophistication in the ways of the politics. We all know that the sickle cell treatment authorization bill, forget the name of it, I should remember what it was called. That was great in 2018, but people thought it was over. That's just an authorization. No money came with it. So I'm trying to work with all the advocates to let them know, don't take an easy yes. As hard as that was, that's an easy yes. The hard yes is putting money behind that. The third thing is we have to constantly battle. And I do think there are interests from all over and nobody's bad people and they're all trying to do what they can. But I think the next frontier is really making sure that we get systems of care so every child with sickle cell, every adult with sickle cell gets the quality of care they get at your institutions. And there's not enough hematologists to go around. So we're going to have to scale this with primary care providers and nurse practitioners and pharmacists and everybody who could lend a hand in this. I think that's very important because it's one of those things about sickle cell. You don't have 10 people or 50 people, but you don't have 5 million either. It's 100,000. So it's in that spot where no single practitioner is going to have enough of these that they feel comfortable treating, but there's not such a small number that you could handle them all in your specialty clinic. So it's a big challenge for the American healthcare system we have it organized. And that's another theme. You know, look, I'm passionate about sickle cell disease, about people with sickle cell disease, but I think it's a model for so many other orphan diseases that are 50,000, 100,000, 150,000, that nobody really feels comfortable treating them that we are going to get new treatments that are going to be very expensive. So how do we pay for them? How do we allocate them justly and fairly to make sure that everybody who needs them gets them? And if we can fix sickle cell, I really think we could really make great strides against all the other orphan diseases in that sort of 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 range. Just my opinion, but I really do believe that. Absolutely agreed. You know, Admiral, one of the things that we, we struggle with as physicians is sometimes changing people's minds and hearts about sickle cell disease, even within the hospital hallways. I'm curious what type of candid conversations you've had in your time with this administration as far as, you know, certainly this wonderful roundtable that the First Lady had for sickle cell patients was a huge accomplishment. I'm curious if you get the chance to talk about sickle cell disease regularly with high-ranking officials in the administration on sort of a weekly, monthly basis. Well, it depends how high you want to go. You know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Secretary Azar, he speaks about sickle cell all the time in every one of his talks, and he's fully supportive. Now, I would not take no for an answer, but he always says yes, and he understands the importance of it. Although this is not one of the, because we're in a COVID pandemic, but there's so many people who are passionate about sickle cell. Francis Collins, he said it's his lifelong dream to cure sickle cell. That's what he really went into medicine and biology for. Dr. Gary Gibbons, who runs the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Wow, what a passionate warrior. And he's got the weapons of research and money, you know, putting $120 million towards that. Rear Admiral Felicia Collins is a Boston Children's trained pediatrician who we have now as our lead for minority health and the interagency. It's not just these because I'm, you know, the health side is good, but we have CMS. Remember, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is the 800-pound gorilla. Their budget is $1.3 trillion. So if you want changes, you've got to change reimbursement. You've got to get that right. And they're at the table working. And places like HRSA, 
because they really provide training. And in one area that I think we could do a lot better on, and this was recommended in the National Academy's report, and Mr. Tom Engel, who's the Hearst administrator, we really need to talk about more educational opportunities and funding reimbursement for scholarships for people going into hematology fields. And that's very doable. Not making promises now. That just came out of the National Academy report, and that, that just sort of didn't make it to my mind. But really, everybody in HHS is talking about sickle cell. We've got powerful members of Congress who are big advocates on both sides of the aisle. And, um, you know, the first lady, pretty important to get her involved. And let me tell you, there was not a dry eye there, but nor people more inspired. And also the White House head of the Domestic Policy Council was also there. So I really think people with sickle cell is now um, on the national forefront for all the good reasons on the scientific side, on the policy side. But, but again, we've made good strides, but we've got a lot further to go. One reason we sponsored the National Academy's report, we did that back in October 2018, is we wanted to have, and let me tell you, 99% of public health is nonpartisan. We all want the same things. But when you get a National Academy report, that absolutely transcends any administration, any political party. And I really wanted to sort of leave that if we transition in another three months. We have a 580-page blueprint by the leading physicians, scientists, advocates, patients in the country that we can all work on independent of whatever administration. So that's kind of where we are and I think where we're going. It's so valuable to have an advocate on the inside and all of these things going on. The NASM report we reviewed last week, you know, I think is the blueprint. Now we have to execute it. And I, you know, you brought up lack of adult hematologists. And that's certainly one big problem we have, you know, get the kids through childhood and then there's no care or really limited care. The other area we have a lot of trouble with is, you know, all of the psychosocial support that you need around sickle cell. And I think that was really highlighted in that NASM report too. Are there efforts going on to bolster reimbursement for that or create a pipeline of providers there? We need to start really working on the provider side. And I, I told you that's something we haven't really worked on, but we have all the mechanisms to do that. And, and that's very high on the agenda for us to move forward. Yes, we're working on the reimbursement side and they have very close colleagues in CMS that are trying to understand, you know, really what can we do with the system? And, and, and you know, they're working really hard. They have 37 million people with chronic kidney disease. How many people on dialysis? They have big problems to solve. So I'm very grateful for their time, but they really are involved. And again, I, we've tossed this around a lot and, and there's some proposals there and we'll see if we can get funding for it because we fight for funding within the administration. You know, I really would like to leverage our federally qualified health centers in a model that's really like the treatment demonstration model because we're not going to have that many hematologists for adults. But what if something much better than a routine you know, visit but something less than a hematologist, that we give them the psychosocial support, a pain management person. And that's something I'd really like to do. And Mr. Engels at HRSA is very excited about that. And given the concentration of patients with sickle cell disease in a lot of our urban areas, and particularly in the South, I think we could set up a network like that with the backbone of support from telemedicine, Project Echo kind of things to advance health. Look, I'm up for anything. All I know is what we're doing now is not working. And, you know, we got to be data-driven and honest. But I think something like that I'd really like to see done. I don't know how you feel about it. We would love to be the first federally qualified health center <laughs> in Detroit for adult sickle cell patients. If you need a demonstration site, we'll set it up here. If we get the money, uh, you're on. All right. 
You know, Admiral, one of my main focuses and the reason for this podcast has been as much as we're trying to do biologically with sickle cell disease, with new therapeutics and curative initiatives, one thing we struggle with is this infodemic, right? Which has also been highlighted with coronavirus, this misinformation, disinformation that patients are suffering from. It, it truly is something that's holding back patients' ability to have optimized care. I read the NASM report with great interest, but one area I feel like we still aren't paying enough attention to is how do we tackle medical misinformation, medical disinformation, because we could cure sickle cell disease. It could be the easiest thing in the world, but if it's not on the patient's social media feed, and if you're not getting it to the patient effectively, it might not matter. And that's sort of been our goal here with this podcast is pushing forward curated factual information that's easy to digest and accessible to patients wherever they may be. I wonder if you guys have had conversations about how to get a handle on medical misinformation and disinformation. So I think what you're doing, I want to commend you because that's really the way to reach people. They need a credible source of information. They need it in a digestible and a fun format. And that's exactly what you're doing. And, and you're doing something that we could never do. The federal government will never be as credible as people like yourselves who's providing the information. We're experimenting with things. And and I don't mean experimenting like we're doing an experiment. But for example, for COVID information, going to minority communities, we were able to award $40 million to the Morehouse School of Medicine to get a whole beautiful group of organizations to work to provide information to minority and underserved communities just about COVID. And what I say is I think we might be able to learn something from that as well on how we could span the gap between the federal government and the small community organization. And I think players like a Morehouse School of Medicine is sort of that good intermediary. So I think we need to work on those models. Right now, we're trying to get the information out there, the facts and where we are. And then I'm here to support you and what you're doing and and any ideas you have, we need it because we do need to get it to patients so they can advocate for themselves. We've tried like with a supplement to the annals of emergency medicine, uh, working with our emergency medicine colleagues, because what I knew and what you know, but what we heard in our listening sessions was the incredible frustration of people with sickle cell who have to go to the emergency room. They do not want to be there. Believe me, they do not want to be suffering in pain entering a healthcare system that doesn't trust them, that discriminates against them, that thinks they have opioid use disorders, struggling to get basic care, but they're there because they have to be there. So we wanted to work with groups to make sure that people get fairly treated in that regard. And again, we still see it. A sickle cell patient whom I'm very close to was in a different hospital because the hospital was full. The provider said, I know you have a sickle cell plan from your provider, but we don't feel comfortable with it. You know, we have to get over those things and we need the education. You know, we have to listen to patients and be respectful of them. That's one thing they teach you in pediatrics. Always listen to the grandmother, right? That's always a good lesson. You know, I learned that if the grandmother comes in and says, this baby ain't right or something's wrong with this child, you better listen really hard. And when a patient with sickle cell says, I'm about to get really bad, I need this or that, I know my body, we need to listen to them. Absolutely. That's an order from the admiral. (laughs) Admiral Giroth, I don't have the words to thank you for making time for us today. We are so appreciative and just know that at any time, if you want to come back to this podcast, we will clear our schedules to make that happen and talk to you some more. Good. Stay safe and thank you for all you're doing. Absolutely. Let's make a plan to do this again in a month or two, okay? 
That, that sounds, sounds great. great. Thanks, Admiral.